2: Hi, and welcome to Thought Talk Radio. I'm your co-host, Neil Bradley. With me is my regular, Joe Quinn. Hi there, and joining us again this week, SOT Editor, Harrison Keeley. Hi, everybody. So, today is Sunday, 28th September, and we're going to be connecting the dots on another mental week on planet Earth. I think we should begin with, well, it's been on our mind a lot lately. Joe and I spent the better part of a week looking at what happened in Scotland and recently published our report into countless, it seemed reports from people who participated or either just as electors sending in their vote or in some way involved in the process of the referendum. Countless numbers of them spoke up and said I saw this, I saw that, it didn't seem right to me and we're pretty sure that there's enough indication from what they're all saying that something highly irregular was taking place in scotland and what was highly irregular was
1: was the fact that as we said and as a lot of people have said is that scottish people are traditionally extremely nationalistic and independence minded would have rejected by a majority Uh, the opportunity to become an independent nation. That in itself uh, is enough, as far as I'm concerned, to put a massive question mark over the entire electoral process because it's absolutely ridiculous to even suggest that in that kind of a referendum, the majority of Scots would not have voted for independence. Uh, I think I I drew the analogy um, in in the kind of report that we published which was that it would be like the event for anybody who who knows the situation in Northern Ireland. It would be like uh, the diehard God save the Queen unionists in Northern Ireland when given the chance to vote for uh, uh, staying with the United Kingdom or uh, joining a United Ireland, that they would join a United Ireland. That's utterly unthinkable as well. It's ridiculous. It would never happen. And the same thing, the same situation applies in Scotland. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. It's ridiculous. Apart from all of the obvious uh, examples that we outlined of uh, of serious mismanagement, mis or you know misorganisation essentially, and the uh, lack security procedures, as part of the um, Scottish referendum, the actual details of, and of course the idea that the Brits would ever have. Um, you had two conflicting things here. You had two ridiculous uh, uh, notions. Uh, as part of the Scottish referendum. One of them was, as I just said, that the Scots would have rejected the uh, the opportunity to have their own country. And the other one was, as in the run-up to the election, this ridiculous notion that uh, the British government uh, was willing to have a referendum, an open, free and fair referendum, and let Scotland go uh, if the will of the people uh, expressed itself in such a way. That is also a ridiculous notion for for anybody who... uh, who knows anything about the the state of uh, state of Denmark? Well, state of
2: London. Something stinks and <clears throat> if we can gauge from a distance the reaction of people who, let's say, would naturally be skeptical in Scotland. They accept they accept the result. A lot. But they say that it was Achieved by lying to the people, by saying, if you vote no, this, this, and this will happen or not happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it was a so mass- there, there is a reaction and it's manifested. There have been big protests at the Holy, uh, Hollywood Parliament in Edinburgh, but they're not protests specifically saying, oh, wait a minute, this was rigged. A lot of them are. A lot of people are.
1: We don't know exactly how many, but there's a lot of people on Facebook, there's a lot of people on, on comments. Uh, on mainstream media newspapers, particularly in Scotland, stuff all saying, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, this, there's something, something is wrong with this. And people have personal experience of there being, for example, as we mentioned, uh, you know, ballot papers not being the same, some of them being blank, not having identifying marks in the back. Theoretically, those ballots could have been rejected. Um, the but, irregularities in the form of uh, the ballot boxes, the seals in the ballot boxes having numbers on them, uh, serial numbers on them, and those not being recorded so that when the ballot boxes arrived at the counting Centre, they could be checked to make sure that the seals were the same as the seals that left the the polling station. Um, And then there was security around the actual uh, transport of the ballot boxes themselves, where basically uh, anybody or his mother could have apparently come along and collected those ballot boxes and taken them supposedly to the counting centre. The perfect opportunity there to to tamper with the boxes en route from the polling stations to the counting centres. Um, then there's obviously the postal votes. And this is something that really stands out with the postal, postal votes, which is uh, there's a record number of postal votes in this election, rec- the most postal votes ever in any election in the UK. Um, and.
2: Not quite. For Scotland, uh-huh. the, the record number is held by the last general election for UK-wide elections in 2010. Right. But this was the highest for Scotland, Scotland, yeah. yeah. So um,
1: they, uh, those postal votes, uh, the background on the postal votes voting is that basically anybody uh, can send in a postal vote. Even if you live uh, five minutes walk from a polling station in Scotland, you can still send in your vote by... Uh, by, by post, by mail and the other aspect of postal voting is is that there's a mass and this was, this was exposed several times over the past 4 or 5 years by different people one of them was a, a report by a, a European Council Council of Europe uh, did a report on British elections and said that they're wide open uh, to fraud um, then there was a judge who was the in England, yeah a judge in England who is the um, he, he kind of oversees electoral fraud cases and allegations, and he said that uh, he found fourteen different ways that specifically via postal votes that you could uh, that you could manipulate the results of elections and it was wide open and they had done nothing to change it and, and he said that the 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 main problem was in that tony blair 's government in two thousand. Uh, the Labour government had changed the law so that anybody, like I just said, anybody can send in a postal vote. Uh, the idea behind postal votes is is that if you can't get to a polling station, you live somewhere outside of, I mean, you're, you're at that time, you're outside of Scotland. or um, But at, at this point, they changed the law in 2000 and anybody can vote. And since then, the idea being that it's very easy to uh, add register fake people on the, on the official uh, civil registry. So you can create thousands, hundreds of thousands, if you want fake names, they will get postal votes, that they'll send them in, and those people essentially uh, don't exist. Uh, so there's so many ways, and all of these ways, when we were writing this report, we were, we were looking at uh, all of the evidence to try and obviously justify our or to, to back up our uh, initial premise which was based on common sense and social media, uh, which is much favoured by the State Department. And also a,
2: experience of knowing Scots. Also, I've lived in Scotland. Yeah, Joe, Joe knows a lot of Scots. So. Yeah. Uh,
1: absolutely. I mean, you know, so I don't know if there's much more to say, about that it was stolen and they're not going to, when they go to that extreme, uh, to those lengths, to uh, rig a, a vote, Um You know, if people try and uh, address that issue or try and uh, rectify that that fraud, basically, by having another referendum or having a recount or whatever they would try to do, they're not going to let that happen either, you know? Because the problem is that Scotland's problem is that it is part of the United Kingdom and completely infiltrated by the English, let's say, by English politicians or politicians who are, uh, you know, United Kingdom slash British slash English minded, you know. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the Scottish National Party in Scotland is the biggest party. There's a there's a Scottish Parliament, that devolved Scottish Parliament that runs a lot of the day to day things within uh, uh, local and regional governments in uh, Scotland. But all big important issues on tax issues and you know military and defence and all that kind of stuff is taken from Westminster. So. Um, the Scottish National Party is the biggest party, but only by one seat. Uh, the next biggest party is Labour, Scottish Labour Party. But that's exactly the same pretty much as the Labour Party, a.k.a. Tony Blair, the warmonger. Mm-hmm. And there's a Conservative Party that has quite a, quite a number of seats, and that's the Scottish Conservative Party, but it's completely the British, the English Conservative Party. The same with the Liberal Democrats. So it's just been around, it's been English for three, it's been part of the the British Raj you know the Scottish Raj for for uh, three hundred years, and you don't root out the the the, the kind of uh, the agents of empire
2: uh, overnight, mm-hmm. or even in a long time. You know. Uh, just one last point regarding post-ballots, post-voting was massively up, whatever increased. By Blair's Labour government, the early 2000s. Yeah, he made a, for anybody, anybody could. I mean, ent- theoretically, the entire electorate. Could it, say was, the postal vote. it was so lax. It, this is something I found since we've published our article. Postal vote postal vote fraud. <clears throat> there are 50 criminal inquiries across the UK um, before the results were called in at the last elections in 2010. This is an article at the time. Voter fraud could eliminate the outcome of the general election as evidence emerges of rigging. Police have launched fifty separate inquiries in fifty different constituencies. Amid widespread fears of electoral rolls being packed, so that's fake names buying for the ballot to be sent to them. They, I mean they had absurdities where a flat in London that houses two people received eighteen separate postal ballots. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thanks to the introduction of mass postal postal voting on demand, the stench of malpractice now hangs over the whole process, whether it be through serial abuses of the electoral roll or widespread fraud in the casting of postal votes. Hmm. So, I mean... The scenario here is that it's very easy to add. It's unbelievable. It's very easy for mi 5 for an intelligence
1: agency, which has access... Uh, to all of uh, the British government's records, all of its, you know, pretty much everything there, the overseers, uh, the protectors of of the realm. And um, this was a national security threat for them, the threat of Scotland breaking away. And it's very easy for them to add a large number of people onto the register in Scotland uh, and get postal votes for, postal ballots for all those people and then send them in. Of course, that means that there's a, that there would be more people, more votes counted than there were officially people, right? But that's why it's, this theory isn't mutually exclusive to the idea of tampering with ballot boxes because in that scenario, you would have to in some way remove an equivalent amount of um, actual votes cast in Scotland. Yeah, more or less. You wouldn't have to tally precisely. No, roughly. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty easily done and, um, of course, this isn't anything new. Uh, Americans haven't had a democracy, an actual proper vote-free uh, and fair election for I don't know how long. Well, probably never. Almost maybe hundred years. Maybe I don't know. But it's it's been a long time. Uh, but most notably, for example, in, in the year two thousand with uh, Bush. Uh, apparently, I don't know if I'm, many Americans are aware of that. I'm sure all of our listeners are that are that are Americans, but uh, I don't know how many. Americans out there know it, but or even knew it at the time, but the 2000 election was stolen. Not even conspiracy theory stolen. It was clearly stolen. It was in all of the uh, mainstream newspapers that Catherine Harris, Jeb Bush's uh, mistress and other things, uh, stole, uh, removed in the same way, in the same kind of thing about the register. She removed thousands of uh, black and uh, mainly mainly African-american and also people who had been uh, in jail at any time criminals offenders she removed all these people who were legitimately legitimately entitled to to vote she removed them all from the register so uh, they could not they they didn't get a a ballot I't do know whether it works in the US but they didn't they weren't allowed to vote the very least when they went to uh, Went to vote. There. Their name wasn't. Their name's not down. They're not getting in. So they weren't. Uh, they weren't allowed to vote. So she just basically removed these people from the register. And as a result of that, Bush won. Uh, not that Al Gore would have been any better. <laughs> this is the horrible thing about it. You know, yeah. is that oh my God, they stole. They stole the vote. If only. I mean, they, they. No, it's not a case of they. They screwed over our wonderful, you know, benevolent leader who <laughs> would have just saved us all. And. Freed the entire US from the grip of the psychos in power, you would have had a blowhard like Alcor.
2: <laughs> Who knows what he would have done? He, he would know, have so saved the
1: polar bears. Yeah, he would have saved the polar bears and let America go to the dogs.
2: But uh, so you know, it's it's no Scotland. It's, it's the oil, stupid. Yeah, it's the oil. I mean, yeah, there's 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 more that Scotland can give. The London government than just oil, but it's basically the oil always has been. I saw a documentary recently. They claimed it was banned at some point, but that can't. It must have been aired in Scotland at some point. Anyway, it was shown in 2009 in Scots Gaelic on BBC Alba, so people got to see it. Anyway, uh, you can see it. You find it on YouTube now. It details efforts of the British government to sabotage the SNP since its creation. They did specific things like the Metropolitan Police in London would actually recruit people. This is going to sound very familiar. To entrap young nationalists into bomb plots. Never happened, but there was a plot and a high-profile trial and it tarnished anyone saying anything in any way dissenting. Uh, They went far beyond that, though. We might have a clip... Should have a clip here. Mm-hmm. I'd like to play. Um, the first third, first half minute or so is a guy named Professor Macrone. He was a chief economist in Whitehall, London, at the Scottish Office. He's describing in, in the first half minute the overall economic situation in the UK at the time. And then once the music begins, you'll hear a narrator reading portions of the conclusion from his report that was subsequently buried for thirty years.
3: It was a very bad time as far as the rest of the economy was concerned. I mean, the shipbuilding industry was in, in pretty dire straits at that time. Much of it was disappearing. And uh, steel and heavy engineering, these other industries, traditional industries of Scotland, were also in decline. So it was, a, it was a depressing time from the point of view of the economy. And, of course, the whole of the United Kingdom was suffering from tremendously high inflation and, and, and unemployment. It is hard to see any conclusion other than to allow Scotland to have that part of the continental shelf which would have been hers if she had been independent all along. It must be concluded, therefore, that large revenues and balance of payments gains would indeed accrue to a Scottish government in the event of independence. The country would tend to be in chronic surplus to a quite embarrassing degree, and its currency would become the hardest in Europe. The Scottish pound would be seen as a good hedge against inflation and devaluation, and the Scottish banks could expect to find themselves inundated with a speculative inflow of foreign funds. North Sea oil could have far-reaching consequences for Scottish membership of the EEC because of the tremendously increased political power it would confer as the major producer of oil in Western Europe. Scotland would be in a key position and other countries would be extremely foolish if they did not seek to do all they could to accommodate Scottish interests. This paper has shown that the advent of North Sea oil has completely overturned the traditional economic arguments used against Scottish nationalism. For the first time since the Act of Union was passed, it can now be credibly argued that Scotland's economic advantage lies in its repeal.
2: And then a year after that report, 1975, they went further by saying that – I mean, they did very detailed analysis on it – that the average income in Scotland would have increased 30% per head if the country became independent. Scotland's economic problems, quote, would have disappeared, and Scotland, this is their quote, would have become the Q eight of the Western world. Then Labour Chancellor Dennis Healy admitted in a recent interview – We underplay the value of oil to the Scottish people because of the threat of nationalism. Westminster politicians today are still concerned about Scotland taking the oil. They are worried stiff about it. It gets worse because that oil wealth was specifically used, at least I think it was, from what they're saying in this documentary, to finance the explosion in in infrastructural projects in the southeast of England. They they specifically named the M25 motorway around London and the Channel Tunnel. I think in retrospect, when you look at the state of the UK economy in the 70s, early 70s, and how it became the City of London Casino in the 1980s, the collateral they used to turn it into that casino was Scottish oil.
1: Just before we go on ahead, we just want to say if anybody wants to call in with any questions uh, or comments in the chat room, feel free, you know, or you know. We have a call on the line right now, I think, so I'm going to go ahead and take it. Hi, do we have a call on the line? Hello. Hello.
0: Um, so what's the topic that y'all are discussing?
1: Well, um what what's your name? Where are you calling from,
0: Nikki? Call from Texas.
1: Hey, Nikki. Uh, well, basically today we are talk We're discussing various different topics. We're kind of calling it connecting the dots. It's going to be about. We've just been talking about the Scottish uh, referendum that happened a couple of weeks ago. We're going to be talking about uh, Iraq and ISIS and um, and then crazy weather going on, that kind of thing. A, a general overview of the craziness going on on the planet over the past week or so.
0: Yeah. Do you have a question? Well, I was looking online and I just see the Scotland Police Department's weaponry and it's kind of like, do they really need, you know, machine guns and everything? Like, wow.
1: Yeah, do you not see that in Texas?
0: Well, not really. I mean, I don't see machine guns. I see guns, you know. Right. I've never really seen that. And I don't know if we well, yeah. should have that. You know, I think guns should be used as a last resort. And if you have tasers and you have, you know, uh, baton and pepper spray, you know, I think you should try that before you go and shoot somebody and take a life. I mean, just because somebody might be resisting arrest or, running away or not doing what you tell them that doesn't mean that they deserve to die
2: no absolutely not yeah right on
1: but that's been that's been happening a lot in the u.s so i don't know if you've noticed that people have been being shot by uh, police uh at an alarming rate in uh, in the u.s for for not a lot you know there's one guy just uh, recently he was shot because um the cop stopped him and he got out of his car and the cop said to him uh show me your license, and he turned around and went back into his car kind of quite quickly just to get his license, and the cop must have thought he was going for a gun for no reason and just shot him,
2: and he was getting his license.
0: Yeah, there was this, um, I'm really into death culture and death news, and I, I like signing and stuff like that, and I was watching this video of this girl who was on the news, she was deaf she was a woman uh she was a black woman uh that was deaf and um her house was being broken into so she called nine one one through her like video phone and um they said go out the front door so she did and she was waving to get the police's attention and the police the police officer um thinks that Uh, She's going to attack him, so he says stop, but obviously she can't hear. Um, So Mm -hmm. he pulls out a chaser and chases her to the ground and takes her to jail anyway and holds her three days without an interpreter, which she didn't didn't speak.
2: That's That's horrible. I know. It's yeah, so, it's so inhuman. They just the police have just got a,
1: a, a an attitude of you know, tase or shoot first and ask questions later. They're, it's like they're they're terrified of everybody and anybody who makes a wrong move or doesn't do what they say and they'll just tase you or shoot you and then f- figure out what happened uh, afterwards, you know?
0: Yeah, like and I also think that it's lack of accountability um it's, you know, uh the police are not held to the same standards as other citizens. Like police can use, police can basically hide evidence that is not going to work in their favor and use evidence that is going to work in their favor against you in the court of law when it's not the whole story, but it works to their convenience. And nobody says anything because judges cover police. You know, police cover prosecutors, uh, prosecutors cover judges. So they all cover each other in the judicial system and law enforcement. You know, it's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not. I mean, there's too many people covering for police. So if there are no consequences, they think that it's fine to do that. And um, and then they get more militant and they think that, you know, they get on that power trip and think that they're above the law. And that is a completely wrong way of thinking.
4: And not only that, when you when you have a system which doesn't have proper consequences for behavior like this, it acts as kind of a magnet for people who want to get into that system so that they can do these sorts of things because there are no consequences. So that's when you get all these psychopaths that want to be police officers and they become police officers because they know they'll be able to get away with it. So it's like the... You get the kind of bully mentality that's that just thinks being a cop is the, is the greatest job because they can threaten people, they can do things with this with their badge and uniform that they would not be able to get away with if they didn't have that badge and uniform. They can say, "Oh, you know, um, okay, well, open your mouth one more time. I'm going to shoot you." I mean, if a citizen says that, <laughs> you can you can charge them like yeah, <laughs> it's it's a threat. It's a, a threat to kill a person, and you can see. You can see videos of this online, you, like the, the the cops wearing the the, the video recorders themselves recording their own behavior, and it's just amazing how much of this goes on and how many people have been killed in the past, even just fifteen years since you know since since nine eleven. I don't know what the numbers yeah. are. It's something like 5,000 5, 5, people have been killed by, by the police in the
1: U.S. Yeah. And how many
4: have been killed by terrorists? Less, a lot less.
1: Yeah, it's crazy, Nikki, and you're and you're right uh, that it's kind of corrupt. The whole system is corrupt from the kind of top down, and um, I'm not sure how to fix that. You know, when it's so. so
0: yeah, uh, and like there was this one man that was at home, um, you know, just minding his own business, sitting with his wife who had a brain injury and she couldn't remember things, and his ex-wife. Um, called the police on him, you know, and his mother ex mother in law and said that there is some suspicion of him hitting his wife. And the police come over to, you know, handle a domestic violence dispute and um or supposed domestic violence dispute and uh they say, um, we were called because uh we got um uh because we have suspicion of you uh hitting your wife and they and they said do you mind if we come in your house and talk to her and they and she and then he said no you're not coming to my house you can talk to her from right there and or you can go warrant and they go back outside and they don't come back with a warrant but he says move your dog or I'm going to shoot it. Yeah, he had a dog there um, and the um, the guy said, no, I'm not going to move my dog. And then he said, move your dog or I'm going to shoot it. So he put his dog in the other room and then uh, they handcuffed him and sent him outside to talk to his wife. And it took two hours and he was sitting in the hot sun. He had a heart condition. And turns out he didn't do anything wrong. And Mm -hmm. he, that's not the messed up part. So they go back and, uh, they said, Oh, you're, you're free to go, sir. And then he said, um, no, take me to jail. Uh, no, you're free to go, sir. Uh, he's like, no, because if I get all these handcuffs, I'm going to beat your ass. And, uh, (laughs) he said, um, and, uh, The guy said, uh, you know what? And the cop said, "Um, I wouldn't recommend doing that, sir. And uh, the guy said back, you know what? I'm just going to sue you all. And the smirk he had on his face when he said this, the cop, he replied, good luck with that. Many have tried. And then Mm -hmm. the guy said back, you know what? You're nothing but a bully. Mm -hmm. I mean, thinking that you're going to get away with something like that, going into somebody's house unwarranted, and, you know, making a guy with a heart condition sit outside for two hours, Mm -hmm. it's just like, and thinking, that's total abuse of power.
1: Absolutely, and it happens far too often, and it's happening more and more and more, and not just in the U.S., across the world, you know, and... uh, but you know, we just keep trying to expose it and inform people about it, and uh, that's the most we can do because uh, there's no point in trying to get uh, get all up in their faces because you're just going to get dazed or something, you know. So, um, um, Nikki, thanks for your call. We're going to move on to other topics here, but thanks again for your call. I hope you tune in again next week, maybe. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye-bye. take care. Um yeah, that was a bit of a but it's
2: current news. Well absolutely yeah, a-
1: and I mean her question was about police in the in, in Scotland, uh, seeing police with um, machine guns and stuff. And you see that quite a lot actually, and you've seen it. You, you see it since uh in particular since nine eleven. Um in <clears throat> the US is kinda of different. You still see the ordinary cops in the street and stuff. Uh in the UK as well, but uh it's kind of the SWAT teams in the U.S. who come loaded up with all sorts of weaponry. But in the U.K. and even in France and other European countries, you'll see police walking around the street with machine guns. Like they have the normal kind of uh, blue kind of bobby outf- <laughs> outfit on, you know, just here to keep the peace, uh, yeah, protect and serve type of thing. But I've got a big black machine gun, you know. And that's whole that's the whole terrorism thing, you know, because they're terrorists hiding around any corner. And they use that with the... Uh, to some extent in the, in the Scottish elections as well, you know, MI5 threw in, uh, uh as, as an attempt to demonize all through the run up to the Scottish election, they were trying to demonize the yes camp as a bunch of threatening kind of uh, militants who were going around, you know, beating up old ladies and forcing them to vote yes. This is the British media, establishment media doing all this. And they, uh, they created this group, the Scottish, what was it, the Scottish Republican army? Uh, oh.
2: Uh, they they pulled it back out of the old files. It actually went right. way back.
1: Yeah. yeah, But they pulled this out as yeah. you know, as just to throw it into the mix. There, there's a Scottish Republican Army to associate the idea, however in however minor a way, to associate the idea of Scottish independence with uh, the IRA. with the IRM, with uh, quote unquote terrorism. Uh, and they also did something. With, it's pretty obvious that they did it. There's no hard evidence, but it's pretty obvious they did it with uh, J.K. Rowling, the author of uh, the Harry Potter books. Uh, she. Gave a million pounds to the No campaign because she's a true she's
2: a Brit. I think she's pr- English. She's but British She's Brit- based in Scotland now. She's British. What's the I don't know. She's North Brit. <laughs> she's half no, North. She
1: likes to think of herself as Scottish, but she's actually British. And um, she gave a million pounds to the No campaign, and they had this uh, these bunch of Twitter accounts I think who were, who were abusing her. Yeah, all this nasty, nasty stuff being said to her on her Twitter account. But when they looked into it and tried to find out where those Twitter accounts were from, who owned them, they kind of just vanished. They evaporated back into the ether from which they came or back into GHCQ or MI5's uh, headquarters from which they came. You know, that's a little example of the kind of dirty, underhanded uh, tactics apart from actually rigging the election that they do. You know, there's a bit of uh, a lot of uh, kind of uh, public opinion uh, massaging
2: uh, well, in, in particular ways, to yeah. quote a particular slide published by The Guardian last year, allegedly from Ed Snowden's leaks, the GCHQ sees its role as to deny, disrupt, deceive and destroy online chat rooms, Twitter, wherever, mm-hmm. just send in fake mm-hmm. messages to try and derail any conversation. If they see it's going a certain way and most people are convinced on any given topic, mm-hmm. they'll derail it by taking it far too into the extreme, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. And making a character out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, anyway, which it, is happening right now, by the way, with uh, the public reaction in Scotland to this referendum. Yeah. I and mean, they've got people saying, oh, everything was rigged. The yeah. whole thing, you busted know. Busted like, wide open. Busted wide open. Here's clear evidence and it's not really, it's a video of some guy. Actually, we should talk about it because this ha- this came out just after we published the report. Um, what's his name? Dave? John? Oh, hey, John. The Sovereign sovereign John. Yeah, Sovereign John or something. Uh,
1: J- John, Mac- John, son of David.
2: John, son of David. Okay, so people are getting excited about this video. He's a guy in his truck. He's done it before. He's one of these sovereign citizen
1: type things. Yeah. He goes along and uh, he films the police when they ask him for his license, he says.
2: Uh, no, I, uh, I can't give you my name, my surname. That's why hence he's known John, son of David. I don't have a surname. Because... Actually legally, if I don't give you my surname, you can't do it. And he's not
1: entitled to give you a surname. He doesn't have to have a surname officially by law. Uh, there's also he said in all these kind of archaic laws, basically, which say that mm-hmm. and also that he, you're allowed to travel on the highway. They use all these old kind of terms, you know, I'm simply traveling in my uh, I don't know how to describe it, in my form of uh, transport along the public highway. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my carriage. I think they say carriage. I'm traveling in my carriage along the public highway. Uh, what you know? So it goes back to like seventeen hundred or something like that. You know, where right. where there's no requirement to have a tax on your car, a tax disc, whatever, and uh, uh, no no requirement to as long as it's not for commercial purposes. If you're simply you don't have to have a license. If you're simply driving your horse and cart down the road, not for commercial purposes, but going to see your dear old aunt, uh, whoever. Um,
2: Therefore, you are a sovereign citizen existing outside of the state or something. Yeah,
1: you don't have to show anything like that. So you use these old laws to kind of...
2: But he does this in a way. But he, like you're saying... He got contacted by mystery caller asking him to be a certain place at a certain time in Edinburgh <clears throat> to look for a particular trash can on a street next to which you would find a plastic bag. So then we cut back to his video and he produces from this plastic bag he collected at a pickup somewhere. Uh... A whole series of yes votes, discarded ballots. Ballot papers, and they were real ballot papers. Yeah, they looked like the real thing. Let's assume they were legit. Well, then we have a problem right there. They should have not. They should all have been accounted for. Right now, every single ballot should be under lock and key somewhere. Mm -hmm. According to the official procedures, there should be no loose ballots floating around anywhere. The flip side of that is what could be happening there is any random person, i.e. an agent of the... Well,
1: it fits our theory that ballots were removed to cover for the extra uh-huh. fake postal ballots that were sent in. Um, so real ballots had to be removed. But the uh, this is where you... Get, I mean, if if you ever think about joining the, the intelligence services, don't. Because you have to involved yourself if you're unlucky enough to be involved in some kind of you know, black ops or something. You have to get into such convoluted double reverse, double triple reverse psychology permutations of how you should do it that it would just it'll fry your brain type thing. The idea behind this, one idea behind it is that uh, they stole the ballots. The MI5 took the, took the ballot boxes away to account for the extra postal ballots. And obviously, they're not stupid. Those are all going to be destroyed. But someone said, hang on a minute. Let's keep some of them. Throw them out there. uh, And give them to this, give them to some guy who'll publicize it. uh, Put them in a plastic bag, give him a call, tell him to pick them up and he'll see on the real ballots. And then that'll spread this theory that somebody in the polling stations or in the counting Uh venues was taking individual ballots to focus on the idea that it was involved either in the polling that that the fraud was committed by people at... You know, polling clerks at polling stations or counters or they're called enumer- enumerators. Uh, aye. <laughs> they're called enumerators, you know, you're not allowed to call them counters. They're enumerators. So at the counting centers, that somebody there, there was a team of them. there must have been a lot of them, right? They were all involved and they were all, you know, one vote for the count, one for me sticking in my pocket type thing, you know, or down my bra, you know, and this wouldn't have been observed. So it's to push it in that direction for which there is no evidence to push to redirect away. Because when people, when these intel agencies uh, plan one of these operations, that's criminal. Mm. They're thinking uh, of the aftermath. They're thinking of the aftermath yeah. and what people are going to say. And there's going to be some people who are going, a lot of people in, in certain cases who will smell a rat. Yeah. And, will, and they want to push them down a certain track, which yeah. is the wrong track.
2: And this doesn't mean they plan everything to the end degree in advance. No. It just means that they adapt to the situation in the aftermath as it happens. It's, it's a constant... Operation, insert something now. Oh, look how the reaction is going now. Right, okay, if we load this one up with nuclear capacity, if we can derail it here. Okay, right, do that. Good idea. So it's not that it's a 100% pre-planned conspiracy. It's a constant state of conspiracy, if you like, by state agents against the people. Mm -hmm.
1: Yep, absolutely. So that's the Scottish referendum. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen. Just on a side note, uh, (laughs) Catalonia, uh, that's in North Eastern Spain, Uh, it's officially uh, an autonomous region. Spain has 13 autonomous regions. They all have kind of devolved parliaments, but effectively they're all part of Spain. It's had an independence movement going for a long time. Uh, Several hundred years ago, Catalonia was a separate part before there were official nation states like today. uh, Catalonia was a separate country, Um, but it's been part of Spain for a long time. They have an independence movement and they've been pushing over the past few years you know, the, the the steam has been being been generated for independence and uh, they're quite wealthy. They would do very well. A vast majority of uh, of Catalonians in that region, which includes Barcelona, uh, want independence. And the Spanish government has said, no, you're not allowed to uh, because it's against the Spanish constitution for you to break away. And any vote on that would have to be taken by all of the people of Spain. You can't just have a vote in Catalonia and then say we're independent. But they've been, their local government has been basically saying, well, we don't care. We'll make our own laws and write a law that says we can. Ne, 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 ne. What are you going to do with that? So they, they've kind of done that and they've announced a referendum for the N- November the 9th. And they're going to have a referendum for independence, although it is officially non-binding. But it's going to be the most official referendum to date in Catalonia to get uh, an idea of if there's a majority vote for independence, well, then they're not saying we would, as Scotland was saying, we would immediately put put, uh, put a plan into, into action to break away. We would start, you know, nationalizing the, <laughs> the local industries and stuff like they talked about in Scotland. But it's non binding officially. But who knows what? Once they have that vote, well, they would effectively be in a position to just walk away.
2: What's the name of Spain's? MI5?
1: Oh, They have one, just one central. They used to have more, but they have just one central uh, intelligence operation. I can't remember. They, they gave it a new name recently. Um, it's just central intelligence something or other. But anyway, yeah. I mean, what, but what, what looks like the way they're setting it up in that situation is that they're saying it's unconstitutional. And the Spanish government is saying it will not happen. I mean, this is a little more than a month away. Mm-hmm. And the Catalonian government is saying, and they've had these massive, massive demonstrations for it. You know, in one case, it was a million people, yeah, on the streets in Barcelona. Uh, so the Spanish government say, is saying it will not happen because it's unconstitutional, and the Catalonian government say, is saying yes, it will. So again, that, that's shaping up to be a kind of a well, put the Spanish police there. Uh, it's kind of shaping up for a civil war, basically, because it's you know, the only way they would be able to stop it would be to go around and to stop people from actually voting.
2: Yeah, so or that, just try to ignore anything that comes out of it. They just try to manage Well, they can't ignore If like, they went ahead and declared independence, I mean, that's the, that's
1: the trump card that these regions and uh, communities or whatever have in different places around Europe and around the world is that they can simply say... Uh, we'll just go ahead and do it regardless of what you say. We have a parliament, we have elected officials, we have the people behind us, all of our industry. Those people are all pro-independence. So um, what exactly are you going to do to stop us? The only way you can
2: stop us is by force. Yeah. Anyway, I'll Just be clear, this isn't nationalism for nationalism's sake. I mean, the steam behind this is exactly the same reason why all of our listeners and everyone out there is is fed up. It's because mm-hmm. of severe austerity measures yeah, from the government since this bankster calls crisis. Mm-hmm. So the psychos have been screwing over the people and making them
1: suffer. And people are saying, well, screw you back. And that's where the... Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of hopeful in a sense that at least it gives, gives you some heart uh, that, that people are taking some action. That's the, and, yeah. and there are someone... Uh, people in positions of, you know, uh, political power who are willing to do it. I mean, it remains to be seen what comes out of it, but it's even the fact that the, uh, even if the Scottish referendum was rigged, it's still the fact that it actually uh, happened, and as we suspect, 70-plus percent of people actually voted for independence. I mean, that's it's heartening that people are ha- at least having that reaction and voting against these cycles mm-hmm. in power and what they've been doing to them by uh, by, by taking direct action, you know.
2: Yeah, and even if it's thwarted, I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, Joe, but for me, do, doing our report, we're just putting it on the record. As far as we're concerned, it was rigged yeah. for a success, an independence. The success of an independence movement doesn't depend on people in Scotland getting that here and now, because the momentum is. It it is completely galvanized people Mm -hmm. just getting out and becoming at least a little bit more politically aware and the greater context around them Mm -hmm. and once that has all kinds of non-linear effects I mean they're proudly calling themselves the 45% I think tongue in cheek because they know they're higher than that but they're already protesting on mass in Edinburgh and they will continue to It's well the whole Scottish thing has galvanized Alex Salmond and the day after, of course, he he was magnanimous in quotes by resigning as SNP leader mm-hmm. and, you know, de facto accepting the result. He has since said, well, actually, we don't need a referendum to <laughs> yeah. declare independence. That's the Catalonian option.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the, just, same, and the same in the Basque country. The Basques are now, I mean, this Scottish referendum, even though it was thwarted and, and rigged, um, it has given. Uh, encouragement to, like I said, the Catalonians, but also in the, in the Basque country, um, the, um, which is kind of more or less on the other side of uh, no, Spain, northeastern Spain. Well, sort of. Um, it uh, they've had obviously. I don't know if people know about the uh, Basque separatist movement. It's been going on for for forty years. Um, it was an armed uh, movement for a long time. They've since embraced the political process, but obviously that's not working out so much. And they they now, uh, with this Scottish uh, referendum, they've been encouraged to basically come out uh, just today and say that they are going to, um, they have a law which allows them to, to uh, have a referendum and to follow the path towards declaring independence. So they're all very much encouraged by... Um, by what has happened in Scotland and that it actually took place. So it's good you know, uh, good in the sense that it'll stir things up even if it involves major clashes between the police and uh, the forces of the, the state versus uh, the ordinary people who want to be independent. I mean even if that happens and, and bad thing happens, it's better than nothing happening because nothing happening these days means uh, we're just on a slippery slope to Oblivion, basically.
2: It means a slow death for us and immediate death for millions of people in the Middle East. That's what it means. Yeah. Speaking of which, speaking of which, how are they reacting to all of this? Were uprising across the the Western world? Harrison, tell us. Uh, that wasn't what yeah, we were going to talk about. Yeah, re-
4: <laughs> rephrase your question. You just go ahead,
1: speaking of which. You, you were going no, to
4: speaking of which, the Middle East. Yeah. So what do we have? Uh, well, to start out before revealing the big secret, which everyone knows the answer to, there's um, a little quiz. In December 2007, uh, let's see if any of our listeners can guess who said this. Quote, the president that is the president of the United States does not have the power under the constitution to unilaterally authorize a military attack in a situation that does not involve stopping an actual or imminent threat to the nation. And who said that? Um, President Obama, Mm -hmm. now president Obama. And what has just happened? He said that when before
1: Before he was president, December, 2007. And he said, "Presidents don't have the authority to do what I'm going to do." Exactly. Okay. So this guy
4: was elected. You no. Know, yes, you know, yes, we can change and all that. Yeah. Close Guantanamo. No more wars. At least, you know, that's the impression that people got. Okay, here's a president. It's not going to be another George Bush. And what did we just have? We have the U.S. dropping bombs on yet another Middle Eastern country. This is what Obama's seventh country in the Middle East
2: that he's bombed or continued to bomb. I think it's seven, including seven. the Bush era, yeah. seven and 13 years. And we can count without this. a declaration of war, Yeah, without
4: a declaration of war. And we can count, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan in there because there's, you know, when did those really end? But the, this latest airstrike, just like all the previous ones, you know, no legal authorization from Congress, um, Obama has said that he has the authority to, to unilaterally make this decision. You know, he's got the power. He's the decider. He's the More decider. More importantly, no U.N. authorization. U.N. And so how are they justifying this? Well, um, there's so far been no official legal justification for this that's been put out. Now, there's they're making reference to a, uh, a couple things like the, uh, what's it called, the the using of, the, uh, the authorization of use of military force that was from 2001, and that was basically the U.S.'s declaration of war on Al Qaeda, which you know could be used against anybody. Against anybody. So in that sense, I guess it is kind of a, legi- a legitimate thing to use. But again, this was you know Bush law from 13, 14 years ago, mm-hmm. and then 2000, the 2002 war resolution uh, uh, for Iraq, against Iraq. Now, Syria is not Iraq. And ISIS technically is not Al Qaeda. These laws have nothing to do with with ISIS. If if you're going to use a, a legal justification, you know why don't you just write up a new law to to justify it? Mm-hmm. It's totally ridiculous. Congress hasn't hasn't approved this. The American people. I mean, if you put this to a, a general vote, American
1: people don't matter, Harrison. Yeah, didn't exactly. didn't, you, didn't you get that memo. The American people are completely and utterly irrelevant so to have, what they do. <sighs>
4: But so you have these fake elections that where you elect your representatives and this puppet president who then go and just do whatever the hell they want and invade and kill people in other countries. And it's like, so, yeah, the American people don't mean squat and all this, but it's. Just think about it, that you've got all these millions of people just sitting by while this small group of people, you know, in Washington, just get together and say, okay, we're, we're, we're going to go kill a bunch more people.
1: Yep. It's absolutely ridiculous. It is. It's a ridiculous uh, image that it presents, but that's exactly how it is in real life. It it's getting more, more
2: extreme with each new.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And, and listen to this. Um, okay, so the, there's been several bomb uh, airstrikes so far in Syria. And already on the first airstrike, we get reports, um, coming out from the human rights organizations in Syria about civilian casualties in these airstrikes. Um, I've, I've read reports of, in one airstrike, you know, five to eight civilians in, in basically from one bomb being dropped. Now, the Pentagon has denied these reports saying that there were no, there's no evidence of civilian deaths. But just to show the absolute mendacity and, um, Just the the sniveling nature of these people. They have redefined the definitions of militants and civilians. Now, um, so this is this is culled from several cases over the past few years. The they define a combatant as any military age male in a strike zone, unless there is explicit intelligence posthumously proving them innocent. So unless there is proof uh, after he's dead. After he's dead that he was not a militant, he is considered a militant.
1: Yeah. Well, that'll be important, you know, because after he's dead, uh, it'll be... The, 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 the person's... Uh, the guy's um, family will really be concerned about whether or not the US mm-hmm. government thought he was a militant mm-hmm. or a civilian. Because that's really important, you know, after his son's been killed by a US bomb, to know uh, what they designated him I've, as.
2: I have a feeling that comes down, how, to, that how, comes down to money. How old is John McCain... Sixties, seventies—I don't know. What's military age? He should be dead. What's military age? Eighteen to
1: fifty. Can we stretch 50? it for John McCain <laughs> because he spent a lot of time in Syria? Come on. Yeah. To get him in there into a combat zone, boom. And but then the question would be what well, we call him after it. Was he was he a combatant or not? I, I'd put him down as combatant. Yeah.
2: He's militant, certainly militant.
4: Yeah. But then then get this. So the, in that quote from Obama. Where he was talking about an actual or imminent threat to the nation. Well, there's actually a new definition for imminent as well. Um, so this is the this is the quote: uh, a quote, imminent threat, of violent attack against the United States does not require the United States to have clear evidence that a specific attack on U.S. persons will take place in the immediate future.
1: Yeah, that's from a few years ago, right? <laughs> yeah, they came up with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was ridiculous. So it's like, um, uh. An imminent threat, yeah, it was a definition of what an imminent threat mm. to America means. An imminent threat to America does not mean that there's an imminent threat to America, <laughs> but we reserve the right to take action on that imminent threat and stop it from manifesting, even though there is no evidence that it's going to manifest. The thing is, it could manifest in a parallel universe, <laughs> in which case we would have to take action in this universe to make sure it doesn't attack America in the other universe. We're
2: going to rename the war on terror to the war on imminence. There aren't imminent threats that may or may not. Well, in fact,
1: don't exist. Um, Just about this ISIS thing. ISIS, ISIL, IS, is isn't is is it or isn't it or uh, whatever. Um, IS, ISIL, whatever they, the what they're for, who they are, basically is they're the descendants, the ideological descendants of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. from the late 70s and 80s that were trained by the U.S. to fight the Russians. Now, that's an important point, fight the Russians. Mm -hmm. The U.S. has been fighting the Russians since then. I mean, it was fighting them before that, but there's an unbroken line, especially in terms of these Mujahideen and Islamic terrorists, i.e. proxy, death squad fighters, etc., in the pay of uh, Western governments. So you had the Mujahideen in the seventies and eighties fighting the Russians. Then they were kind of retooled, updated. They were given kind of a rejuvenation, uh, you know, serums or something that made them all, you know, uh, younger versions were produced for <coughs> for Iraq. Uh, so Al Qaeda and then the whole Al Qaeda thing before the, first, the, the Taliban, yeah. well, the Taliban, mm-hmm. but before then, so but specifically the ones in the pay of the US mm-hmm. uh, goes back to. I mean, it's officially known. They were in the pay of the U.S. to fight the Russians. They are also in the pay of the U.S. to uh, essentially uh, be a proxy army to be used for whatever they needed them for um, in the Middle East, to keep the Middle East mixed up, chaotic. Um, they were trained throughout the 10-year occupation of Iraq, that was a perfect opportunity, a long time to kind of get them all, kind of get your get your right numbers, get the right people, train them, arm them, and they this latest incarnation after Al Qaeda disappeared and IS uh, appeared. Notice when IS kind of really hit the headlines, came out of their um, come out of their caves their bunkers, their spider holes, their rat holes, whatever, when they when they came out and started sweeping across Iraq, uh, they came out of Syria supposedly, but they came out of various different places between Iraq, Syria and Jordan and stuff. They were being trained in Jordan. They came from Saudi Arabia, they came from Libya, but they came and swept down through Iraq in, in this massive kind of blitzkrieg. They took over large parts of Iraq right after, when did it happen? It happened right after the situation in Ukraine. Ukraine. Mm. Flared up. So, Ukraine flared up and then ISIS appears. Now the point of this is is that ISIS, the ultimate goal of ISIS is uh, to keep Russia uh, out of the Middle East. Uh, Russia is in the Middle East, its interests, exerting its interest in the Middle East in the, in, uh, via Iran, Syria, uh, and Lebanon. And the US wants to stop that from happening because if you look at a map, you know, uh, you need to look at a map for this kind of thing just to get an idea of, of where it is. But uh, in, in the context of where Russia is and where the Middle East is, and Russian access to the Middle East, which is a very uh, crucial area in terms of uh, resources, oil, etc., the US wants Russia to stay away, especially now that it is, uh, is asserting its uh, its its power. Essentially, uh, what's the word uh, the US uses? Um, projecting its power. Uh, into the Middle East and around the world, so the U.S. is fighting against that, and ISIS plays a very strong part in that because um, they want to get rid of Syria uh, because Syria and then and then uh, Iran next door. There's a threat there for from for Russia to essentially uh, establish, you know, um, kind of business and trade and military links, etc., with Iran. Iraq, Iraq, and Syria. So you have Iraq, Syria, and Iran in a line, kind of thing, you know. So ISIS come in, and um, and it's used now, being used to justify the bombing of Syria. And I'm pretty sure we're going to see that this bombing campaign, which is, you know, it's a full declaration of war. I think the Brits declared war officially the other day uh, as part of their.
2: Uh, in some form or other, they said they were they were at war now, but they went to the raid of having a House of Commons vote, where MPs voted overwhelmingly in favour. Yeah. The same House of Commons that last August just about voted against this very same action. Yeah, remember the chemical weapons trumped up nonsense mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Russia undercut. Yeah, here we so are I again, mean, Russia it. Russia has been
1: making moves in the background for the past few years. I mean, like you just mentioned with Syria. They stopped them bombing Syria a couple of, uh, last year.
2: Was it last year? Yeah, last year. And in in and, all the years before that, before
1: that, um, so Russia has been Russia wants Russia, Iran, Syria, and even uh, depending on who's in power in Iraq, they want uh, the Middle East borders to stay pretty much the way they are today. They don't want uh, Iraq, which is the plan for Iraq, is seems to be to kind of carve it up into three smaller states that can be more easily controlled and uh, taking out um, putting someone in power that is compliant in Iraq uh, getting rid of Assad in Syria is a move to potentially uh, regime change in Iran Mm -hmm. and putting in a a compliant Western compliant puppet kind of regime or government in, in Iran and once you've done that I mean, Russia has been pushed right back almost to, well, its own, its own former borders, but certainly it's very far. It's out of the Middle East. It has no more control. And the big threat to these Western American empire builders is that Russia will, along with China and with the BRICS and all that kind of stuff, will assert itself in that area of Eurasia. It's essentially about stopping, uh, obstructing, or preventing Eurasian integration. Mm-hmm. And when I say Eurasia here, I'm talking about the Middle East. Yeah. So. Um, it shouldn't be called the Middle East. No. It should be called Southwest Asia. Yeah. So that's actually what, that's what ISIS is for. It's, it's in there to stir things up, keep it chaotic. I mean, Maliki, who is, uh, who is now the vice president, i uh, sorry, the vice deputy prime minister, or whatever you call it. He's, he used to be the, al Maliki. He was the, uh, the prime minister of Iraq until a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. And Obama officially, the U- U.S. government actually publicly said, "Go, you're out of here." Um, and he he stepped down, and they put in this guy who was the former. Um, he's a former uh, BBC uh, lift op- um, technician. He, no he, he was, way! He was a, yeah, he's in exile uh, for twenty or thirty years. Iraqi exile. And he was brought in, and and because Simaliki uh his, the guy who stepped down, I was told to go. By the Democratic USA, you know, telling other the, the the prime minister of other governments to leave, leave now, as you should leave. Um, he was Shia, and he was an Iran, uh, the Iranians are Shia Muslims, and he was essentially aligned with Iran, mm-hmm. and he had been doing playing the ball Iran's way to, or playing the game around Iran's way, and um, the US didn't like that because they saw a Iran Iraq alliance that would. Uh, Support uh, Syria and because of Iran's alliance with Syria and also Lebanon, and then that gets you down into Israel almost. And all three of them aligned with Russia. I mean, it's a serious threat for US control and dominance in the Middle East and Israeli. And Israeli as well. But the Israelis are kind of, they're definitely involved, but I think the Israelis kind of who like to hedge their bets a lot, they're not too concerned about who the next superpower is, as long as the next superpower allows them to remain the dominant uh, country in the Middle East. As long as they don't shake it up that way, they'll drop the Americans in a heartbeat if someone uh, comes along who is the new kid on the block, right? The Israelis don't mind, and as long as they can control them as well, in the same way the Mossad (laughs) controlled the U.S. government. Um, But the interesting thing here is that... There's this group, and you wrote about it a few years ago. The Mujahideen, the People's Mujahideen of Iran. Of Iran yeah, MEK. MEK. They were a terrorist organization, officially a terrorist organization, because. It, okay, you have to bear with me for a minute here. In 1953, MI6, British intelligence, and the CIA overthrew uh, the government, a democratically elected government in Iran in 1953 of Mossadegh uh and they installed uh a puppet kind of government under the Shah of Iran and then they set up uh a brutal uh, kind of uh, military police force Savak that, that was trained by the CIA to enforce their the the regime that they had just installed. An anti democratic coup organized by the CIA and MI6 and put in a kind of a pinochet essentially for the next twenty five years. In the late seventies there was a revolution that overthrew that Western-backed organization, and part of that those that revolution, revolutionary movement was this People's Mujahideen of Iran mm-hmm. (MEK) in, in Persian. They were so, socialists, basically. They were socialists, exactly. Uh, they wanted. They were secularists and socialists. And so they then, but then afterwards with the Ayatollah who established a kind of more hard line and it was seen that this had to be kind of like after the revolution, you had to kind of put some control in place and the Ayatollah came in and it was more, it was more of an Islamic kind of state. They didn't get on so well. So they left. Uh, they went to Paris and set themselves up in Paris in France, but they also, a lot of them, several thousand of them set up a headquarters in Iraq. In, in a place that today is called Camp Ashraf, which is right on the Iranian border uh, in Iraq. And they were given safe haven in Iraq because at that time, the U.S. had been supporting Saddam Hussein against uh, Iran. against Iran. So Iraq was a safe haven for them out of Iran. Um, so since then, they've been essentially the Iranian government in exile, effectively. And they, since then, maybe even... Pre revolution, when they were set up to kind of like overthrow the US puppet dictator, they may have even have been a creation of or infiltrated by the West at that time to overthrow their puppet and install a new puppet type thing, you know. But anyway, so they've been in, in, in exile, uh, government in exile, and they want this socialist, they want to overthrow the Iranian regime. And they were a terrorist organization when they were fighting against the US's uh, puppet regime in Iran, but then. Afterwards, when uh, in later years, when uh, the US turned against Iran, um, or not when the US turned against Iran, but in later years, they were designated as a, as a terrorist organization. And then more recently, in the last 10 years, that
2: Terrorist designation was removed from this organization. So, first they were, sorry, you said terrorists terrorists twice, yeah. First they were like your rebels, like your Syrian rebels today. And then, oh, now they're overnight, they became a terrorist group. Now, today, they are back in the position of being most favored rebels. In fact, officially, well, semi officially designated as Iranian government in exile headquartered in Paris, France, where they've been positioned in this huge palatial mansion mm-hmm. since, the, I think, the late 1990s. Uh, they, uh, This MEK is the source, source, in quotes, of so much of the BS that's been said about Iran. The whole nuclear, Iran's getting nuclear weapons, that yep. doesn't actually come directly from Israel. Israel cites this MEK mm-hmm. You see? Yeah. And, and then they go, oh, these are our sources. And they, of course, the MEK are diehard. They they want to overthrow. Yeah. And this MEK... The Iranian government.
1: Yeah. This MEK, were, as I said, were they were in a camp called Camp Ashraf during the U.S. occupation. And they were kind of like um, treated fairly well by the American occupying forces in Iraq. Uh, but then once the U.S. troops were kicked out or for, told to leave by Maliki's government he, being aligned with Iran, moved them off this camp right on the Iranian border and brought them back over to Baghdad to a place called Camp Liberty. Uh, And they're now being a little bit persecuted, or they're they're complaining about being persecuted by the Iraqis because the Iraqi government, at least up until Maliki uh, was moved down, uh, it was aligned with Iran, and therefore Iran was saying, listen, we don't like these people. These people are basically CIA operatives. They're a Western kind of orange revolution, yellow revolution, what's called well, a Persian revolution gang. That's what they're being groomed for, and we don't want them on our border. Well, the reason, they've long since been active. I know. And the reason... terrorist attacks in Iran have been carried out by, this by them. yeah. Hmm. And we don't, we don't want them in this camp, this big kind of... It's not really a camp. It's a like it's like massive kind of compound that has big gates on it and all this kind of stuff. It's like a gated compound for 4,000 people. And the U.S. has been grooming these people essentially to uh, keeping them on hold, on ice type of thing, to um, to use for a, a regime change in Iran. Like after a bombing campaign or something, they would you know, send in, you know, try and occupy Iran. They'd have to occupy Iran. If they want to get rid of Iran, they have to occupy it, in the same way they occupied Iraq. But they want to have a ready-made kind of contingent of Iranian freedom fighters type of thing, you know, and set them up in government. So they were moved moved back and now they're complaining and their leader is uh, a woman come a woman called mariam rajavi and um she's faded in the west in paris she lives in france i mean with all the iranian exiled expats in france and um but she actually uh, started her political career back in 1965 when she was part of the revolution that happened uh uh, that was growing and and ended up in the the, the revolution in 1979. But back in um, back in the 70s, <clears throat> sometime in the 70s, her sister, uh, her sister was killed by the Savak, which is the secret police in Iran that had been trained by the CIA under the U.S. public government of the Shah. And her sister was killed by, effectively, a terrorist police force that was or a secret police force that was trained by the CIA. And now she is, she's apparently forgotten that. And she's now fully supporting freedom and democracy from Paris for all Iranian people, all 80 million people. And she's, and I mean, the reason I'm saying all this is because back in, um, in June this year, they had a massive MEK rally in Paris. They, they hold them annually. Yeah, but this one was like 80,000 people and a big or a big kind of venue with flags and, and I think they had the Eu- European National Anthem. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is the European National Anthem. But I,
2: just, I saw one once. You, I saw them rally you, in, you in Brussels, Brussels yeah.
1: in front of EU headquarters. So they get so much support, it's amazing. And this is for the overthrow of, of Iran, a coup in Iran, basically these people are supported. And these are people who are supposedly, you know, up until six years ago, they were officially... At, on the terrorist list of terrorists, the Western U.S. and they European... They still list of are. Terrorists. No, not anymore. They were removed. I think, what well, very recently, though. Yeah, within the past couple of years, they were removed. Yeah. Deliberately removed so they could, they could be used to overthrow Iran. And again, like we keep saying, the, the U.S. wants to get rid of Iran and Syria to thwart Russian uh, kind of interests in Eurasia. Eurasian integration like all of these countries which are all part of the same landmas and Russia being the most uh the most powerful one the u s is terrified In this but anyway this rally that they held uh, you should have seen the people there you know they had this uh the start of it was all this fanfare kind of some kind of uh classical music flags ticker tape eighty thousand people waving uh,
2: uh Rudy Giuliani was there um Newt Gingrich was there former John former CIA chiefs turned up and talk at these things,
1: yeah John Bolton was there exactly the the, the 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 great and the good from uh, from the u s and NATO countries were all there to support these people, and French politicians stood up and blatantly said, you know it 's about freedom and you 're going to be free, and it will happen, and we 're going to install a free democratic government in you know i mean <laughs> it 's just ridiculous, you know and Um, And all these people waving flags have no idea what they're doing. You know what I mean? They have no idea what they're supporting. But um, just listen to this um, little excerpt because it has a little bit of intro of the music. Uh, You get the idea of the fanfare with which they, they started this event and then a few American speakers.
4: Important messages from the United States Senate. I first want to begin with the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Carl Levin. He writes The United States should persist in pressing the government of Iraq to live up to its obligations under the December 2011 agreement with the United Nations to ensure the safety and security
5: of Camp Liberty. Some may ask, why is the United States interested in Camp Liberty? And those thousands of people who live there. It is
4: simple. It is freedom. Freedom. We are interested in human rights. And the first, the very first human right that we all have is to live in freedom no matter where we live in the world.
3: America's values are your values. And don't give up because we will not give up. Call us terrorists. Call us freedom fighters. We will not be daunted by words. We are ready to fight for freedom.
2: So that was um, C. Kyle. Rajavi. Yeah,
1: President-elect Rajavi. That's Miriam Rajavi. This uh, this is useless. Useful idiot or useless idiot, maybe. But um, this is this this is the you know the this, the chairman of the Senate uh, Armed Arm what military committee or whatever. I
2: mean, Armed Defense the, Committee.
1: Yeah, Armed Defense Committee, and they're talking about freedom, and it's all about it's about um, you know protecting these people in Camp Liberty, uh, which uh, is there's about three thousand of them of these. MEK, people who are essentially Iranian dissidents. And they have been completely owned essentially by Western governments and Western intelligence agencies since almost since their formation. And their main, their only goal, their only usefulness to them is to rally uh, the masses for regime change in Iran and to potentially put them in power if and when the US decides it's going to invade and occupy Iran. And um, the, just the, the the you know this is this is coming from people who are concerned about these people in Camp Liberty, a little camp outside Baghdad of three thousand Iranian exiles, and demanding that the Iraqi government protect them. This is from uh, representatives of a government who invaded Iraq and occupied it for ten years and killed one point five million Iraqis, and they meant we're all meant to believe that they're interested in their fate just because they're so. What, humanitarian? Really? I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. The whole thing, it's just, I mean, it's sickening. I mean, I I can't listen to a U.S. politician of any stripe talk without potentially losing my lunch, you know? It's just because they're so, I mean, based on what we know and what they've done, and apparently what they should know they've done, the the hypocrisy isn't the word for it, you know? There's supposed to be a new term of some, you know, super deep, concentrated variety of hypocrisy that, you know, is so hypocritical, it disappears up its own backside, you know, because <laughs> it it talks in such convoluted, lying, manipulative ways, you know, uh, that it uh, eventually comes full circle on itself and explodes, which is what should happen. Every
2: time these people open their mouths. <laughs> they should.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's just that's all kind of uh, interesting <clears throat> in the sense that it's well, um, about what ISIS is and what it's for, and look at what look at the results of it. ISIS comes immediately after the Ukrainian crisis; it uh, shakes up Iraq, it gets rid of the uh, pro-Iranian gov- uh, prime minister in Iraq, um, and it justifies it scares the crap out of uh, Western populations with beheadings on TV, and justifies on the basis of that justifies. It's bombing uh, this new war against, which is effectively against Syria, because they're not—they're not, they not having a war against Iraq. They're having a war against ISIS, ISIL, and they're going to have to bomb Syria. And they've been wanting to get rid of Assad for ages. And why have they been wanting to get rid of Assad? To neutralize Iran. Why do they want to neutralize Iran? To neutralize Russia.
2: Yes, and but more generally, to—it's to, almost like whether they have very accurate stats on it or whether they instinctively react to it. It's any moves or any movements if it's more than one simple decision made it by any two states within the whole of Eurasia. So they say a general trend towards the natural integration between people who live there. Mm-hmm. Then oh God we have to go in and stir things up. That's that's what's going on every time. And that's how you ended up with this convoluted situation where We're bombing in Syria, but it's to get rid of ISIS, not Assad. But yeah, we kind of want to get rid of Assad, but we're not sure when we want to get rid of him because that depends on all these other things. So we're trying to calculate as best we can. Now, Joe's given a very good explanation, a rational explanation for what's going on in the Middle East. If you were to follow the official line as best you can, this is what it would sound like. So this is a a letter written to a UK paper earlier this month. Some member of the public, what was her name? I can't remember. Oh, Aubrey Bailey. She just wrote in the Daily Mail. She says, are you confused about what's going on in the Middle East? Let me explain. We support the Iraqi government in the fight against ISIS. We don't like ISIS, but ISIS is supported by Saudi Arabia, who we do like. We don't like President Assad, bad man. We support the fight against him, but not ISIS, which is also fighting against him. We don't like Iran, but Iran supports the Iraqi government against ISIS. So some of our friends support our enemies, and some of our enemies are our friends, and some of our enemies are fighting against our other enemies, whom we want to lose, but we don't want our enemies who are fighting our enemies to win. If the people we want to defeat are defeated they might be replaced by people we like even less. And all of this was started by us invading a country to drive out terrorists who weren't actually there until we went in to drive them out. Do you get it now? Yeah, that's so clear. It's clear as mud. Um, but that's why you should
1: ignore, uh, you know, ignore the official declarations of what's actually happening. just see it Cause cause won't it, make it, sense. Because it can be simplified. You know, if you look at it from a broader, um, you know, geopolitical perspective and understand what their intentions are, you know, what their broader intentions are, because what their broader intentions are are kept quiet, uh, and they make up all sorts to come up with all sorts of convoluted narratives and you know, explanations as to as to what's actually going on, and it generally revolves around freedom and democracy. So, on the one hand, you have what you just described, which is the actual. If you try to understand it, that's what you come up with. On the other hand, you have what the U.S. government says, which is we're just trying to get the bad guys. And the truth of the matter then behind all that is that uh the U.S. and its NATO allies are the bad guys. They're trying to prevent true freedom and democracy and the will of the people from being expressed in this particular region of Eurasia. I mean, one example just to back up what I was saying about them being afraid of Russia. Russia just... um this year, reactivated a 2012 um, agreement with the Iraqi government to sell uh, 4.2 billion worth $4, 4.2 billion dollars worth of weapons to Iraq. That's Russian arms sales to Iraq. There's also um, Iran selling striking oil deals with China while China is striking gas deals with Russia. And Russia has oil <coughs> cooperation deals with Iran. You got a triangle going on there, you know. Um, you also have Iraq's decision under Maliki, who was forced to step down recently, to be part of an Iran-Iraq-Syria pipeline. Iranian oil through Syria and Iraq. They want to thwart and and, and that's, that, that's their worst nightmare yeah. in terms of trade. Yeah. Um, so, and Russia has no problem with this, you know, Russia is happy for all of that to happen because um, it it screws over the U.S. basically, it, it it's one a shot in the eye for the U.S. and it, it diminishes their control and their influence and their power and everything that you're seeing in terms of ISIS is a reaction to that threat that they see looming on the horizon. Uh, So just dispense with all of the rhetoric and all the bullshit and all the fear-mongering about ISIS and realize that they're basically just a proxy force. They're a proxy army uh, of the type that has been used many, many times throughout the past hundred years and longer, all around the world, primarily by uh, the U.S. and, and the British. And that's pretty much all they are, and they're there to... I mean, they're a proxy force with a twist, which is that usually your proxy armies, you know, you use them to kind of like attack countries that you want to, you don't want to attack yourself. They have a, spe- and they have a specific strategic goal. Yeah. But they're, they're a proxy army that's kind of let off the leash a little bit that you can then use to, uh, to, to, uh, use as an enemy, right? So it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like tagging your, your, your actual enemy with a terrorist. Uh, marker, you know, and then everybody says, oh, terrorists, but you put the terrorist marker there, you know, so you just go in and put a, you kind of set up an ISIS dummy in, in Syria or wherever you want with, you know, a knife and a
2: balaclava and make it say that it's going to cut the heads of Westerners and then you get to attack it. And that's for making sure they can tie in what's going on 10,000 miles that away with the imminent threat right here at home. That's the only yeah. reason for that theater. Yeah, that's for the home consumption. Yeah. Did any of you listen to the UN speeches?
4: I read some summaries.
2: Yeah, jeez, I was afraid to, but I did listen to Lavrov's. Yeah. I mean, the guy is just re- a relative fount of sensibility. Mm-hmm. He he discussed this natural processes of forces of integration. I think that would be over the heads of a lot of people, but. He said exactly the same thing we're saying here. The reason for this chaos is—he didn't say it in so many words, but there's chaos and there's what's going to happen anyway, one way or another. Mm-hmm. Absent the world actually being blown up in the eventuality of some all-out conflict, which is very unlikely. Um, but um, did you did you see the report about the the homegrown? Beheading. I think it was today or yesterday. Were. Hang on a second, find it. In Merca. In Merca. Uh, from Oklahoma. A recently fired man beheads co worker at Oklahoma food plant. A man fired from an Oklahoma food processing plant has decapitated one of his co workers and attacked another one for before being neutralized. FBI say the subject recently converted to Islam. He's this big six foot four black guy. Soon after he was fired, the 30-year-old employee, Alton Nolan, Nolan, walked into the front office of the Vaughn food processing plant in Moore, Oklahoma, attacked and killed an employee with a knife severing her head. Oh my God. That's gross. Now, now, is that just well in consequence? I mean, is it related? It's a bit, it's a bit coincidental, it's a to say twist. the least. <clears throat> but
1: that's the way these people operate. You know, they know how to push people's buttons, and 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 they can do it, and they do it. You know, and people just should um, should uh, you know immunize themselves against that kind of button button pushing, as horrible as it is, and and see what the but the fairly obvious agenda is behind it. All you have to do is be- stop believing in in the freedom and democracy, and start believing in the uh, kind of stop believing in the freedom and democracy narrative or version of the world, and uh, start believing in the reality, which is the lying, manipulative, uh, no depths to which they won't stoop, psychopath
2: narrative, and then it all makes sense. Um, Maybe this will give you hope, Joe. 400,000 people were protesting across the U.S. last week.
1: Protesting what? Oh, yes. No, we talked about this last week. They're protesting about...
2: Right, it. But it, it went down all week. Yeah. Well, that, they're out on the, mass and they're protesting. Yeah,
1: they're against, protesting against uh, carbon footprints. <laughs> Some, Some are, of them are protesting against fracking, which is a good thing. Yeah. But a lot of them are yeah. saying we can change the world by reducing our uh-huh. carbon footprint. Let's greenify industry and all' start driving green cars that run on grass.
2: And part of the U.N series of meetings, whatever I think it was a scheduled U.N. security meeting. Guess who came up to give a speech? Hmm. He's the U.N. recently appointed U.N. messenger for peace. Yeah. This is straight out of Team America. of <coughs> <it's> the Clown. <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio.
1: Oh,
2: yeah. yeah. Film Actors Guild.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The Film Actors Guild. They're going to save the world. But they must have just, they took that from Team America. If, if, if nobody's watched it, you should watch the film. Uh, it's a puppet movie, Team America. Because uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, obviously it's made by the guys who do South Park, but it's actually very funny and very a lot of it uh, has... Um,
2: a lot of it has come to pass, which is...
1: Yeah. The, especially with Leonardo right. DiCaprio standing up at the UN, with a kind of you know, let's save the world together type of thing uh, through uh, reducing our carbon footprint, etc. Yeah, if you can to get in
2: any more Hollywood, no,
1: I mean, Hol- I mean, you have a Hollywood actor. Okay, they did it first with Ronald Reagan, but you know, at least he was a kind of became a politician or something and stuff. But Leonardo DiCaprio uh, acts for a living. He's an actor. Everything he does is fake. False so, in that sense, having him up there talking about uh climate change, global warming at the u n and all of the u n delegates all you know listening attentively to him it's it's perfect because that's a complete fake fantasy notion of global warming is is pure pure fantasy, so having someone who who uh, portrays fiction and fantasy and make believe for a living.
2: Give that speech. His, his first words were, "I'm an actor, so so don't believe anything I, I say. I pretend, and I'm involved in fictitious stories. Yes, I'm no expert. He says all this. Okay, yeah. so, so why I'm, am so I? Why here? Why are you there? Well, he says I'm here as a concerned citizen. Yeah. Just your average concerned <laughs> citizen. Yeah. <laughs> he he said, I mean, this is where, you know, how do you say this? among among the things he said, he said how can anyone deny that new climate events, unusual climate events are happening every week and of course the the rest of the gist of the message was we must do something and specifically said we need to slap major taxes on oil and other coal, Mm. gas use, etc I mean it obviously hasn't thought that through because right there you're going to starve, kill 2 billion people but
1: that first doesn't matter, you'll see if the polar bears and the animals, it doesn't matter about the people Save the polar bears and screw the people, and the response would be. You know, that, that, that's the kind of response you get whenever you say <laughs> save the animals from a lot of people.
2: But his first point there how can anyone deny that strange events happen? And he specifically cites massive methane outgassing, volcanoes erupting. What else did he cite? Uh, drought, extreme extreme flooding events. Yeah, but how's it all to,
1: true? But how are we going to fix it?
2: Uh, I guess we're going to put a cork in the volcanic vents under the ocean. Uh yes, yes, yes. They like that one. Okay, got that one right. Yeah, they like that. Yep. That's, the, uh, that's the UN,
1: by the way. We have a direct link to the UN. They're listening to our conversation. <laughs> so every time Neil says something that is uh, is UN approved, they, they applaud. I don't know why. We have no control over it.
2: How else? I mean, drought? What are you going to do with the drought? We're going to collect the rainwater from all the deluges inundating cities everywhere and we're going to transport it. Wait, that would mean increased consumption. Sorry, it sounds, yeah. good. sounds good. Okay, okay, yeah. We're going to transport it to the drought-ridden places, yes. Thank you. I like that, I like that, yeah.
1: Uh, um, yeah, methane outgassing from the sea floor.
2: Oh, 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 there was the one recently, well, about a year ago they're going to capture an asteroid that's incoming mm-hmm. and deflect its orbit so that it loops around the moon, you see, and as it's doing that loopy loop around the moon, it'll spray asteroid dust over the planet, see, mm-hmm. and that blocks out the sun's rays, see, and global warming goes down. Oh, well, I think they'll... Yeah. Oh, yeah, that that's, the, that's for the cord. See, yeah,
1: I mean, see you're, you're hitting all the marks here, and you're on a, you're on a roll. Um... um Yeah, methane outgassing, you know, just, I don't know, burn it off or something. You could just set half of the Atlantic on fire, you know, and and burn it off and and then use that heat to help uh, people suffering from cold in India.
2: I, yeah, I I think they like that too.
1: Uh, Okay, yeah, these are all good, good solutions and worthy of... um, why why weren't why weren't we invited to the UN to stand up and say these things? Geez, I mean at least they're getting some idea of them now since they're on our uh, live satellite link. But um <laughs> what <laughs> but what other um was there anything else? Is there any other things that that are bothering uh, people who are who care about care a lot about polar bears, um. Uh, any other major events? I mean, we mentioned drought, flood, methane, outgassings, volcanic, and volcanic eruptions. eruptions, earthquakes. Can we do anything with the earthquakes? Oh, are they t- uh, first of all, are they tied to global warming,
2: earthquakes? Well, this is the thing. They never try to explain this. You know, they, they won't ex- try to ex- connect in so, what way increased yeah. CO2 production causes earthquakes. Caused by humans, causes earthquakes. And more methane eruptions. Uh, but you, So what you're saying
1: is that we just should ignore that.
2: Well, Yes. Okay. Nothing to see here about. No, but the, the thing is, is, DiCaprio, in the U- speech of the UN, cites those very things which are impossible to link with. Well, uh, not if you're you've got a good imagination. But this is it. I mean, the mental gymnastics involved here. Droughts. Humans produce too much CO2. That causes the atmosphere to heat up, except that the atmosphere is cooling. Oh, I know what happened. That heat went into the oceans, except that the upper layers of the atmosphere are colder also. Ah, but the layers down below are much warmer. That's where it went. It went down there, and it's causing all the methane to come up. Right. They have got it completely backwards.
1: Okay. But how does the warming of the planet cause earthquakes? I'm, I'm sure there's a link there. Is it, is it the drought? Because, you, you know, what I've seen is that when there's... Now obviously, drought is associated with um, warming, right? When it's warm, you have a drought, even though there might be, like, flash floods 10 miles away. We'll ignore that for a minute or forever. Um, so warming causes drought, and I've seen in drought areas there are cracks in the ground. And I may be wrong, but I have a sneaking suspicion or I think there's a correlation between those cracks and the cracks that happen sometimes when you have an earthquake. Bingo. There's your answer. It's global warming because you've seen it. seen the cracks from the drought, Uh and they're similar to earthquake cracks, Uh and maybe those cracks allow things to fall down there that cause earthquakes.
4: (laughs) Fall down there to cause earthquakes. That's where Saddam's weapons of mass destruction went.
1: (laughs) That's where they're possibly hiding as well. That's a good point, Harrison un interview <laughs> so um I wish this stop clapping. it's a bit of a top and
2: um, anyway <clears throat> it's because we're famous actors yeah so um ha- wait but Harrison you you saw something in in a paper recently yeah. that just highlights the absurdity of trying to hold two completely opposing okay, logistical yeah. explanations at the same time
4: so this is, this is in the logical english english language newspaper for france the the connexion and so on page 4 in news we've got a headline nice as hot as cairo if climate changes continue i'll just read a little bit of it so by the end of this century by the end of this century temperatures in parts of france could be more like north africa with average thermometer readings up to 5.3 degrees celsius in summer and perhaps considerably more in the southeast that would make July temperatures in Nice warmer than Cairo and Paris' warmer than Nice is today. A report for the Ecology Ministry by Meteo France and other scientists led by climatologist Jean Jouzel also said that winters would be warmer by up to 3.6%, but they would have more rain. So, 6% yeah. of what? <laughs> so Meteo France Climate Research Chief um, Sergei Planton said, Uh, With the worst-case scenario, the summer of 2003, which saw a severe heat wave which killed nearly 20,000 elderly people in France and 70,000 people across Europe, could become the norm after 2070. And, of course, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, The solution, of course, is to reduce greenhouse gas. Yeah, Mm -hmm. of course. And then on the facing page, page 5 in news, uh, power supply warning for future winters. Now, of course, the, the article itself is talking about um, power plants being shut down in France, just not being able to have enough energy to to provide for all the electric heaters in homes in the winters in France. But um, when you just look at the headlines, um, it makes a, a striking uh, com- uh, just dichotomy. Because actually, you know, the world isn't getting warmer anymore. That stopped years ago, more than a decade ago. And we've been having worse winters. So there's, a, there's some truth in here. The power supply warning for future, it's not, uh, you know, even if there is going to be this problem with the amount of energy because of these plants closing down and things like that, the world and winters are getting cooler. Um, just September 19th, we saw temperatures in New York reaching f- the freezing mark for the first time in 60 years.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, that stuff, you get statistics like that all the time. We've got... Uh, Record snowfalls and early snowfalls uh,
1: this Yeah, record early snowfalls in Wyoming and South Dakota and stuff. So basically what they're saying is that despite the evidence out there as it's happening, i.e. early snow, record snow, record cold over the past four or five winters, they are going ahead. All of the evidence that points to extremely cold winters, increasingly cold winters across the northern hemisphere, they're shutting down uh, power generating plants that would provide for people to keep warm in the winter. How we don't need them. And reminding you to just to, to deal with that shock. They're saying, ah, oh, but, you know, Nice will be warmer than Cairo one of these days for like a week during the summer if you're still alive after you froze during the winter. We have a call on the line here. I'm going to go ahead and take it. Hi, do we have a call on the line?
5: Yeah, hi. This is uh, Kent from West Virginia. And, hi, Kent. Um, we were talking about uh first of all, I'm talking about fracking now i I hear i'm i in, in part of a fracking territory right here right here in West Virginia and near Pennsylvania, and of course, we're hearing about it takes a million gallons of water to uh frack the well and everything and of course people are worried about the water supply, but never fear with all that gas they can make and use that gas to power desalination plants so hmm. <laughs> I know that's what they're thinking you know so so they gas so they can destroy all the water. And then they can use all the gas to desalinate
0: the ocean. Yeah, they can destroy
1: all the water, destroy all the water, and then fix it again. After the the oligarchs, the the psychos in power, and in the in the oil companies and the gas companies have made their billions, and say, okay, now we'll apportion a little bit of that to clean up that water that we turned into deadly, toxic, flammable water. Oh, sorry, we've run out of money.
5: You should be on the Board of Directors. <laughs> yeah. Applause. Applause. Yeah. And,
2: uh, yeah.
5: and uh, you're talking about cracks in the earth. I was, um, of course, um, there's supposed to be some um, mountain up in the, the Canaries or one of those, you know, the island chain off Spain or down off Portugal. And are, mm-hmm. and, uh, and there's supposed to be a, a crack in it that's, if it ever were to slip – it would slide, yeah. Create You've heard about that, right?
2: Yeah, be still that. my beating heart. Yeah, <laughs> it I mean, might create a tsunami. Yeah, I'm waiting for it.
5: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's Not only New York, but Dublin and every place else, of course. You know, yeah. But, uh, global. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Global, global warming might set off that crack, and now I just heard that. Um, uh, there's somebody come out of a the theory of the Japanese tsunami in the Fukushima that um, that claim that, um, but you know, there's a uh, 20 20 kilometer by 20 kilometer by two kilometer thick section of the Jap trench underneath the ocean slipped down and created, you know, and that's why it created a, a tsunami that which is bigger than what could have ever been anticipated. So now we have the fear that mm. that you know that will be translated into fear about that mountaintop. Down in the Canaries, or wherever it is, and then, of course global warming, talking about a crack in the earth. So, so, so there you go. You see. So now. Yeah. Know, that's just. Uh, so uh, that's a whole new area of fear we can all be experts in. You know. Absolutely. And, uh, we can get a PhD in that and uh, make a fortune and uh, live. In <laughs> exactly. <areas. laughs> yeah.
2: Disaster capitalism.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I just thought I'd add that and uh, appreciate your interest.
2: All right. Thanks, Thanks, Kent. Take it easy. Okay. Have a good one. The thing, the thing about some of these cases, though, these the study goes that goes into, I know the one in the Canaries, that's based on geological studies that show it has happened before, mm. or it's theorized anyway. There's a more definite case where a trench off the coast of Norway is very likely the culprit for a massive tidal wave that they couldn't explain beforehand. Mm -hmm. that inundated Norway at some point. I mean, we're talking on geological timescales. This isn't something recent. But uh, semi-massive events like that have happened in the past. Mm -hmm. What's more, these things happen in clusters. They come together with other types of events. And we suspect they also come together with, we know in fact that they're reported at the same time as massive social upheaval. Different periods of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so well, on the one hand, you can, yeah, you know, don't panic, lighten up. When it comes to any one individual event, maybe happening, mm-hmm. but that and worse has happened all the time. Yeah. I mean, look what happened in Japan yesterday. There were two. 200, there's 250 people right now stuck on top of what they thought was a mountaintop. It's been dormant since I don't know when. It just exploded totally out of the blue. At at latest report, 30 people have been buried on the rash Mm -hmm. on Mount Ontake Mm -hmm. in central Japan. I mean, they were caught off guard. Absolutely, yeah. It just happened. It was like a thief in the night, as the Bible says. And Um, that's the second major eruption this month. The Iceland one too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... um Speaking of cracks in the ground. Yeah, Crimea. Crimean sinkhole is. There was a big sinkhole opened up
1: in near Sevastopol in, um, in, in Crimea. And uh, it was eight by six, eight by eight wide by six deep. So uh, about 25, 30 feet wide by about 20 feet deep. That's a wild car wild. fell into it and killed I six people. deeper than six. Well, that's what they said, eight by six. But anyway, it's. The car was crushed. Yeah, it fell in. And the six six occupants were, were killed, which is, I think, the first time that a car has fallen into a sinkhole and killed uh, a person. A lot of them have fallen in. Even people have fallen into sinkholes, but I'm not sure many people. I'm certainly not the first. Not, it's the first time a car full of people and all of them died yeah. falling into a sinkhole, which is bizarre, you know. And,
2: it wasn't on some country road. It was on a highway. Yeah. And it's, it's almost a perfect, check it out on YouTube, it's almost a perfect puncture hole. Yeah. Straight down.
1: Uh, Well, I think we'll end tonight on some good news, and it's that um, NATO's uh, Secretary General, um, Anders Fogger, 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 that Fogger, that Fogger Rasmussen, um, is leaving. So I'll no longer have to suffer his, uh oh yeah, well, hang on, yeah, yeah, he's leaving, I mean, he's leaving soon, and... um, and we no longer have to suffer his interminable spewing of paramoralistic horshit uh to the world justifying war crimes and murder and um uh, you know of innocent people as he, had- he did in libya and he's trying to do in syria and stuff but he, he in a parting shot he uh parting missive to the independent he uh uh, he said that Putin's Russia has been his biggest regret during his five terms as NATO Secretary General. Um, he had nothing uh, good to say about Russia. Uh, he claimed that Russia was, um, has been showing utter disregard for international law and a brutal determination to redraw borders by force. The pattern is clear. From Moldova to Georgia and now in Ukraine, Russia uses a mix of economic, political propaganda and military pressure to produce instability and manufacture hot conflicts, which it can freeze at will. Well, if they are foggy, they learned it all from you and your ilk. So you have nobody to blame but yourself, so fog off. Um, he says, um, he said the world is different from when uh, when he became Secretary General five just five years ago. Uh, yeah, and it's much worse because of people like him. Um, But interestingly, he says that the uh, NATO must work even closer with like-minded partners around the world to uphold the rules-based global order on which we have built peace and prosperity. Apparently, we live in a rules... (laughs) We all live in a rules-based global order. Yeah, psycho rules. Uh, I'm not sure about the peace and prosperity. In fact... For some. For a few elite, but... uh, so, yeah, but he just gave this kind of parting uh, editorial in, in the independent newspaper. And um, I didn't, I read some of it, but I didn't read it all because it was more of the usual bullshit. I was just heartened to see that uh, an official statement that he was actually leaving because I was getting worried that he wasn't, you know, I mean, that he'd try and stay on for another five years. But thankfully, he's gone. I'm just concerned about who's going to represent the evil alliance after him. I think that's already chosen, but um, I don't know who it is. So, um, but we'll I'll we'll keep a watch out for that and keep the earplugs handy. Um
2: so So we'll leave it there for this week. I think we'll leave it there for this week. We've more
1: or less got well, to our uh, I'll make well I've got one thing to say. Okay, Harris. <laughs> take us out.
4: Well, this is just a, a slight correction to something we, we were talking about last week, about the Ebola and the CDC report. So the advanced news was uh, from Bloomberg that the CDC report had projected 500,000 cases of Ebola by the end of January. Mm. The CDC has since released the report, and it is 1.4 million cases, mm. almost three times as much as you know they've these, these leaks were saying. Yeah, they've upped it. So 1.4 million cases of Ebola by January. By January, end of January. And the death
2: rate, 50%.
4: Well, that's another thing we said last week, death rate, 50%. It's actually not 50%. Now, 50% of the people infected w- with Ebola so far have died. Well, now, um, but that doesn't translate into what the actual death rate is. The death rate is 84% because that only counts the number of people who currently have Ebola and the, the, number, the number who have died. But of the number that currently have Ebola – Eighty-four percent will die. So they're saying it's a fifty percent, but if you actually look at the statistics, um, the the survival rate, the actual survival rate of people who have recovered from Ebola, is only what the sixteen percent.
1: So one point five percent, one point five million people uh, with Ebola. With Ebola, by the end of January, and an eighty-four uh, percent mortality rate yeah. is one point two six million people. So one million two hundred and sixty thousand people should be dead. Uh, about early next year from Ebola.
2: Don't panic, though. Don't panic. The good news is that American troops have started landing.
1: That's right. As we mentioned last week, they have uh, arrived in various countries Sierra Leone Sierra and various countries in Africa. They'll kick have, that Ebola back to the Stone Age. They have the, exactly. They're going to. They're going to. Apparently, they're going to strike with freedom and democracy.
2: Yeah. Oh my God! So much for ending on a positive note.
1: But uh, yeah. But the, well, the, no. But they. You know, it is positive because they're going to. You know, and they're also going to be, they're wearing protective gear to make sure they don't get it. Uh, The protective gear is basically an American flag. They wrap themselves in the American flag and then they're immune from Ebola. So all Americans back home should take, take note that that's, if you want to protect yourself against Ebola, you need to wrap yourself
2: in an American flag and eat some of it as well. There's there's a mantra they have to cite too, isn't there? There is, yeah. There's no God like Jehovah. There's no God like Jehovah. Yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, no actually that's obviously not the way to protect yourself against Ebola there's nothing to do with the American flag. The best way to protect yourself against Ebola and any virus is to uh, make sure that you keep uh, that you don't feed it uh, and the way you don't feed it is by uh, too many carbs keeping a low carb diet and you can also protect your own cells from vir-i, uh by eating uh, the flip side of that is instead of eating carbs eat animal fat uh, because um when you eat, when you have animal fat, good natural animal fat that you can digest and your body can assimilate, it, it essentially enhances or creates a protective kind of sheath of fat because uh, there's, a, there's a fat sheath around uh, your cells and it adds extra protection from the invasion of viri into your cells, which is how uh, So high fat, animal fat, butter, etc., diet, low carbs, and... Uh, Cold adaptation, have cold showers, that boosts your immune system, and um, those two things are uh, the best way to prepare for Ebola. If you don't want to um, contract it, and we'll not get into how you die from Ebola. But there you go, look it up <laughs> if you really want to know. We people need to, people need to know these things, you know? Absolutely, um, it's not a pretty world. We're trying to, we make light of it, you know, but it's not uh, a nice place to be. But I mean, you can't get too focused on it, because otherwise you will just throw the towel in, you know, and you can't lose hope, real hope, not Obama hope, uh, hope that things will right themselves eventually uh, in this world, and that justice will be served, if not by any human agency, but some other agency, some natural uh, force, whatever. And smoking, of course, is a very uh, uh, good way to protect against viral infections, uh, surprisingly, I know people listen to this. Some of you, anyway, know will be horrified. Some of you may already have fainted at that at that statement. But um, there's historical evidence to show that, for example, during the plague, tobacco was used mm-hmm. to protect. And the, during the plague, uh, the Black Death, uh, people who smoked did not contract the the, the virus uh, as much as other people did, or even at all. So uh, smoking, animal fat, lots of bacon that kind of thing, and keep your carbs low and take the odd cold shower. It's good for you. Uh, That's a hopeful message at the end of tonight's show. Do all those wonderfully fun things and uh, you have a much better chance. So, as we said, we're going to leave it there for this week, folks. Uh, Thanks to our callers and to our chatters and to our listeners. And thanks to my two co-hosts, Neil Bradley and Harrison
2: Curly Keely
1: Keely We will be back Next week With another show Um, Until then Have a good one And stay safe And keep your eyes open And be good
2: Bye 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 Take care